Our text, texts this morning are two, and uh, I'd have added a third one if I'd have had a chance, but I didn't. Uh, let's start with Psalm 131, very brief psalm, very beautiful psalm. Psalm 131, verses 1 through 3, which is the whole psalm. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then from Joshua chapter 1. verses 7 through 9. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go." Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word. It's alive and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth and it accomplishes the work that you want it to accomplish. It doesn't return to you empty and void. There's never, ever, ever a circumstance in which your word does not fail to do what you have purposed for it to do. And we are gathered here expectantly saying, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. My glasses are down here. Well, when I was a kid, uh, it might have been late elementary school, it, it might have been middle school, I can't remember just exactly when, but I remember reading a science fiction story and the story was about a, a group of people who had left Earth and who had colonized a very distant planet. It took them decades and decades of travel to get to this planet. And in the process of this colonization, they had lost contact with the Earth. And on this planet, it was, it was an okay place to live, but there was a kind of a background radiation on the planet that over time caused physical mutations. And after many centuries, every person on the planet was severely physically altered by these mutations. And it had been so long since anybody had seen a normal person that they didn't know any longer what a normal human being was supposed to look like, but they thought they did. And so they set up this social caste system 
where the people that they thought looked the most normal were in positions of the most privilege and the most social power and the most wealth, and the people that they believed looked least normal were looked down upon, and they were the objects of discrimination, and they were hated, and they were denied opportunities and privileges. And life goes on on this planet like this, with this fundamental inequality, the people who think they're normal, lording it over the people who aren't. And then one day, after centuries and centuries, they receive a radio message from a spaceship that's been sent from Earth to reestablish contact, and everyone is so excited, not only because of the reestablishment of contact with the home planet, with Earth, but also because they would finally lay eyes on a human being who was not altered by mutation. They would finally learn what a human being was supposed to look like. And it was determined that a, a delegation of the most important and the most normal-appearing colonists should meet this arriving spaceship as dignitaries. And it was decreed that the, least, that the most mutated should be kept far, far away so they didn't frighten anybody, and they could watch it on video. And those who meet the spaceship are arrogant, and they're smug in their sense of superiority. And when the day comes, the solemn assembly is... A, uh, of the best and the most normal-looking colonists gathers at the landing site, and the ship lands, and after a few minutes, the doors open, and two normal, unmutated men emerge, and they walk towards the delegation, and they remove their helmets, and everyone gasps. They gasp at what their eyes look like and where their ears and noses are located, and the astronauts stare in confusion and in a little bit of horror at the delegation that arrogantly thought up until a few minutes ago that they were practically unchanged human beings. And the last line in the story has one of the astronauts saying, good Lord, are all of you people so horribly deformed? You see, if all you know is mutation and deformity, and you've never seen a normal human being, it's easy to think that mutation and deformity basically are normal. It's also impossible to know what normal actually looks like. Well, when it regards humanity, as God originally created us to be, you have never seen with eyes of flesh a normal human being. There have only been three normal human beings in the history of the world, Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ. And only one of those human beings sustained his normal status for his whole bodily life, and that was Jesus. Now, nowhere is this difference between the normal and the abnormal, the deformed human being, uh, is, nowhere is it more critical to understand than where the mind is concerned. Now, if you've been paying attention and tracking with me these last few weeks, you will understand why I say that. We've been introduced, if you haven't been here, we've been introduced to a lot of Greek words that talk about what the invisible parts of us are and how they're made up and what they do. And, and uh, you're just going to, I don't have time to review it here this morning. If you're interested, you just need to go back online and look at the old sermons or listen to them on the podcast. But, but if you've been paying attention, you'll understand why I said that it's critical to understand what a normal mind looks like. 
Because after we've begun to put into place the settled habit of self-denial or death to self that is the only true and indispensable foundation of spiritual growth and spiritual transformation, the next thing that has to happen is the renewing of our minds. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us clearly, that, that the renewing of our minds is the catalyst which will transform the whole rest of our being when we take intelligent action in that direction. But what does a renewed and transformed mind look like? What happens when a mind is renewed and transformed? Well, since you and I have never seen a normal person with an undamaged and unmutated mind, you can see that we might have a problem. This transformation, this renewing of the mind is not something that happens quickly. It's not something that happens automatically. It's something that requires you to take thoughtful, deliberate action over a sustained period of time. It requires you to aim at something and pursue it. And it's not something that you can glide into or generally stumble into. And history and experience tells us clearly that if you do not intend it and take wise action towards it, it will not happen. But if you've never seen one, how do you know where to aim? We're kind of like those colonists on that planet who've all been mutated by the background radiation and we've never seen any person who's not mutated to one degree or another and we don't know what normal looks like until someone steps out of the spaceship and suddenly we have a standard to compare ourselves to. Well, where's our spaceship? Where's our standard? If it wasn't for the Spirit of God and the Word of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I would be sunk. But thank God that we're not. Now, let me show you, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles here. Let me show you a little seven-word sentence. It's seven words in the ESV anyway. Seven-word sentence in the Scripture that makes all the difference. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And chapter 2. And verse 16. And I'm going to ask you to look at the last little bit of verse 16. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. What does it say there? But we have the mind. Of Christ. Let's say that together. But we have the mind of Christ. Say it again. But we have the mind of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that when you're born again, God comes and opens your skull and scoops out your old brain and transplants the mind of Christ into you? No, that's not what it means. What it means is that our minds, remember the Greek word for the mind is not is noose, and this is the part of us that's designed to know God and, and apprehend God and commune with God and rearrange our lives around God. It means that our minds have access to the mind of Christ as a pattern to conform to. So if you want to know what a, a normal human mind is supposed to look like, an undamaged, unmutated mind, not corrupted by sin and the fall, you can look at the mind of Christ. And God tells us right here in his word, we have access to the mind of Christ. And that gives us a pattern to conform to. 
Now, let me, let me just get you to think a little bit differently about the Christian life here. The goal of the Christian life, or at least this part of the Christian life, is for your mind to function in you exactly like Christ's mind functioned in him when he walked the earth. Another way to think about it is that each of us has a mental map of reality, and we live our lives according to our mental map of reality, and that mental map tells us what we think is true and what we think isn't true, and, and, and we obey our mental map. We have to. We, we, we can't stand it if we don't. Now, thanks to all the wicked and destructive logismoi, I introduced that word last week, or spiritually charged ideas that have lodged in us, our mental map of reality is seriously flawed. It is very, very inaccurate. But we don't know that. And we keep going on through our lives as though there's nothing wrong with our mental map of reality. And an inaccurate mental map of reality can literally keep you from seeing and recognizing and understanding things that are right in front of your eyes. They're right in front of your face. You will not see them. You will not understand the significance of them. You won't know what to do. It'll just go right past you because your mental map of reality doesn't accurately reflect what's happening right in front of you. And I've seen people destroy their marriages because they have an inaccurate mental map of reality. I've seen people flush their careers down the toilet because they have an inaccurate mental map of reality. I've seen them ruin the lives of their children because they have an inaccurate mental map of reality. I've seen them die and go to a Christless eternity because they have an inaccurate mental map of reality. You know, in Southeast Asia, Thailand and parts of India, elephants are often used as work animals, and their training starts when they're very young, when they're just babies. One thing that's really critical is for your elephant to stay put where you want it to stay put. You know, they don't have a parking brake. You can't just, and the elephant stays there. You have to keep the elephant from wandering off. And so the trainer will tie a very thick rope to the baby elephant's back leg and attach it to a sturdy stake in the ground when the, when the baby elephant is very young. Now, at this stage in his physical development, he's actually not strong enough to break that rope or to pull that stake out. And so the trainer ties him up and just lets him try. And that little baby elephant doesn't want to be tied up. And he yanks and he pulls and he trumpets and he whines and he pitches a fit, but it's all to no avail. And he wears himself out trying to yank that rope or that stake out of the ground. And finally, he just stops trying. And every night when it's time to park the elephant, he's tied up to that stake by his rear leg. And over time, he just stops trying, and, and he never again tries to break free. And by the time the elephant is grown, his mental map of reality tells him that there is no use trying to break free from that rope because he can't do it, and so he doesn't even try to do it. But here's the thing. A full-grown Asian elephant is actually quite capable of breaking that rope or pulling that stake out of the ground. So what's keeping the elephant tied up? It's not the rope. Not anymore. It's his mental map of reality that's keeping him tied up. Now, obviously, most of us have more going on upstairs than an elephant does. Some not. I don't know. But um, 
But that same principle holds true for you and for me. Our mental map of reality needs to be replaced with the mental map of reality that Jesus has. And that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. To have the mind of Christ is to look out on the world and to look out on your life, to look at your relationships and your body and everything else, and to see it as Christ sees it in light of the truths about God and about the universe he's created, about good, about evil, about everything else that the Bible talks about. It's to invite and receive into yourself these good logismoi, these good spiritual ideas that are very powerful from God, and they will correct your worldview. And, and they will begin to bring all of your idea systems into alignment with the truth as it is in Jesus. Now, as I've said before, the, the person that's probably written the most about this in the modern era is a man named Dallas Willard. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, also a Baptist minister, and I'm convinced one of the premier minds of the 20th and early 21st century, and most people, you know, they liked him, but he didn't make a big splash, and that's okay, but in 200 years, they're going to be looking at us going, they did not understand who was living in their midst, because this guy is brilliant. Listen to what Dallas Willard says. The transformation of our thought life by taking on the mind of Christ, that is, his ideas, images, information, and patterns of thinking, opens the way to deliverance of every dimension of the human self from the oppressive powers of darkness. And in another place, he says, now, Christian spiritual formation is inescapably a matter of recognizing in ourselves the idea system or systems of evil that governs the present age. So you've got idea systems of evil that are inside of you because you've adopted them and you've made them your mental map of reality. The evil that governs the present age and the respective culture or various cultures that constitute life away from God. The needed transformation is very largely a matter of replacing in ourselves those idea systems of evil and their corresponding cultures with the idea system that Jesus Christ embodied and taught and with a culture of the kingdom of God. This is truly a passage from darkness to light. The Apostle Paul, who of course understood and taught about these things, warned us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6:12. These higher level powers and forces are spiritual agencies that work with and constantly try to implement and support the idea systems of evil. These systems are their main tool for dominating humanity. By contrast, we who have been rescued from the power of darkness and transformed, transferred to the, into the kingdom of his beloved son are to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is an essential way of describing the substance, the underlying reality of Christian spiritual formation. We are, in Paul's familiar language, transformed precisely by the renewing of our minds. So you see how important this is. It's not just learning some facts from the Bible and, uh, and going on like you've been, you know, 
given something interesting to think about. No, no. This is about replacing how you look at the world in a very intelligently thought out, systematic way, identifying inside of you what you believe that's wrong, and finding information from the scripture and from the mind of Christ that's right and putting it into place there. It's prying out one thing and putting into place another. Now, why, where primarily do we find the details of what Jesus believed? Because that's another way to think about it. You need to believe what Jesus believed. You need to believe to be true what Jesus believed to be true. And now, the, the advantage of being Jesus was everything he believed to be true actually was true. And so when you believe as Jesus believed, you'll believe the truth. And your map of reality will be accurate. So where do we find our mental map of reality? Where do we find the, the Rand McNally Atlas? Well, it's in the scriptures, isn't it? The scriptures were given to us to correct our mental map of reality. So let's just look at, at one example just for fun. Let's say that your current mental map of reality tells you that you need to be very worried about a situation that is looming large in the horizon of your mind. It's a situation perhaps where you're concerned about not having enough resources to meet some demand that you're anticipating, some event. And it's the idea of not being able to, to meet the need. Maybe it's financial. Has you filled with anxiety. And you think that by worrying, you're being responsible. Uh, even though it's shredding you, you won't stop worrying. Even though you've done all that you can reasonably do to meet the expected demand, you still worry. And here's why you worry. You worry because your mental map of reality tells you that you are all alone. It tells you that you are the only one that you can rely upon. The only person I can rely upon is me, you say. And you say to yourself, perhaps, I work hard and I act responsibly. I'm my own provider. I am proud. I am independent. I don't want to be seen as someone who needs help. And so therefore, what I must do is white knuckle my way through this with a great dose of anxiety and sleeplessness. Now that's your mental map of reality. And that's a pretty common one. That's one I've struggled with. You know what that mental map of reality sucks. It does, doesn't it? It sucks. And it's wrong. So let's go to the scriptures and let's correct that mental map of reality. First of all, number one, you never were an independent self-provider, you twit. And to think that you are is the sin of pride. God was always behind you and underneath you. And it, for instance, says in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might and the might of my right hand have gained me this wealth. Rather, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So there was never a time where you were doing for yourself all on your own. Never, ever, ever. Number two, everything you have, including your life itself, was given to you as a gift of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So, Everything you've got is a gift of God. Everything you've got, you receive from God. 
you were never all alone and independent to begin with. And it's a mistake to think that you were. Number three, this God, for some inexplicable reason, is kindly disposed towards you. And he has an intimate knowledge of your situation. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Asked Jesus. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. In other words, he, he counts them. It's not, the, it's not that it's like, you know, at Ruley's where you take a number, you know. It's that he's counted all the hairs on your head. All the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. That's Matthew 10, 29 and 31. So I never was independent. Everything I've got, I got from God anyway. And he's watching me very closely. And he's kindly disposed towards me. Number four, this God has an abundance of resources. He actually has all the resources. There aren't any resources that don't belong to God. Elon Musk has far fewer resources than God because all of Elon Musk's resources belong to God. So God has an abundance of resources and he says, if you diligently seek his kingdom and his righteousness as your priority and seek them for their own sake, he has no problem giving you more resources. He'll give you everything that you can possibly handle that won't ruin you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's Matthew chapter 6. Number five, God has already proven his power and his goodwill by giving you Jesus. Does it really make any sense that he would give you Jesus and withhold a few hundred bucks or a few thousand even? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Number six, you may confidently pray for what God has promised in his word. In other words, if God has promised it in his word and you pray for it, you'll get it. And for example, we can, we can use the example of, uh, of wisdom. God has said in his word that wisdom is the birthright of every child of God. It's a gift from God that he will give you if you ask for it. James uh, chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, there are some prayers which you don't need to worry about whether it's God's will or not. And if you say, well, I don't know if it's God's will when God has said in his word, this is my will, then you're being an idiot. And God will not give you what you need if you're going to continue to be an idiot. You're a double-minded person, and you're unstable, and God wants you to settle down and just have confidence in him. And so you can say, yes, Lord, give me what I need. You've said in your word, you'll supply all my needs. That's a promise. So I'm just going to ask you to fulfill your promise and have complete confidence that you will. Now, to the degree that the truth 
the logismoi and those passages that we just looked over actually lodges within you, actually becomes your mental map of reality, then you will face this particular trial rather than with anxiety, you will face it with perfect tranquility. You will be in deep prayer. You will count it as joy that you get to walk through this situation with God and be a witness to God's power in your life and to learn by experience that he is so good and he is so faithful. And to the degree that the lies of the devil and the idea systems of evil lodge in you, you will be an anxious, angry wreck. You choose which way is the better way to live. So how do you get the good logismoi in and pry the bad ones out? Well, that's, that's a, a, an activity that you and God undertake together. That's part God and part you. Um, think about how most of the bad ones settled into your life and how they took up residence there. Rarely ever do we swallow an evil thought, a powerful spiritual evil idea, um, after our first exposure to it. Sometimes it happens where something's so powerful it just captivates us and it's wrong and it's evil and we drink it down into ourselves and it lodges there. But most of the time, they get drummed in there by a process of repetition. It's what the people all around you are saying. It's what the media is saying. It's what the movies that you watch and the books and magazine articles that you read are saying. When, uh, when in Psalm 1, when it talks about the, the blessed man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, you know what the counsel of the ungodly is? It's just the way most people talk. That's the way most people talk in the world. That's the counsel of the ungodly. And, and, and it just kind of, we just kind of absorb it over time by a process of repetition. Well, the good ideas, the good logismoi will also settle powerfully into your being when you create the right circumstances for them to do so and when God acts on it. And now we get to the heart of one of today's texts. We are to identify the false beliefs, the evil logismoi that have lodged inside of us, and then we're to replace them with scriptural logismoi that correct those particular lies with particular truths in the way that we explored earlier, and then we are to rehearse them over and over and over again. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, God tells Joshua and the children of Israel, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do all that is contained in it, and then your way will be prosperous. You are to rehearse over and over again in your mind, even with your mouth, the things that you need to know that need to be changed. And you are to trust in the Spirit of God to honor your efforts by adding His power to them. Now, this is one way, and a very important way, of meditating on the scriptures. It's just by a process of repetition. And that's what it says in Joshua 1.8. In Psalm 1, the Psalm 1 man is very much the same way. He delights in the law of the Lord, it says, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's constantly got the word of God in his mind, turning it over and over. And he, he doesn't do it, uh, um, he does it because he likes it. He delights in the law of the Lord. The word of God seems good 
and true and pleasing to him. And so it's always there. He's doing what he likes to do because he likes Jesus. He likes God. He likes God's word. And he's turning these things over. He's infatuated with them day and night. And they're doing their good work and forming him until he has a life that's like a tree planted by streams of water. And it's never not got enough resources. He's always bearing fruit in season and his leaf doesn't wither because he's always sucking up life from God. Now you may say to yourself, I can't do that. I don't have a good memory. I was a lousy test taker at school. I can't retain things. I can't even find my car keys. Well, let me assure you that you can, that God designed your mind, your noose, just exactly for this, and that he will help you, but he will not do it for you. It's kind of like sleep. You can't make yourself sleep. All you can do is put in place the conditions that allow sleep to happen and then trust God and God grants the gift of sleep. So you pick a relevant portion of scripture and you begin to meditate on it constantly. You say, I, I can't do that. I'll never get anything else done. Once again, not true. Your mind was designed for this. And if you think carefully about how your mind works in your own day-to-day -day experience, you will find that you have two main modes of activity. You know, the, the, it was interesting. I think God has been just working with me because I've been chewing on a lot of these problems for several years. And he's been, uh, in the last year, he's been really working hard on me. And, and I had the weirdest experience starting in January of last year. You ever, you ever get a song in your mind and you can't get it out? I call those earworms, right? And normally they're really annoying. Well, one night in the middle of the night in January of last year, I woke up in the middle of the night with the kinks come dancing, playing in my head. Now, I didn't like that song in 1981. And it hadn't gotten any better. It hasn't aged well, you know? But, but for some reason, it didn't annoy me. But for the entire month of January, come dancing, that's how they did it when I was just a kid, over and over and over, I'm writing sermons, come dancing, you know, my sister always did, I don't care about your sister, shut up, you know, I don't know what the pally is, and I'm glad they tore it down, go away, you know, and, and, and so that, that's happening, and, 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 then, and then it stops in January, and I think, oh, thank goodness, and a couple of days later, Tennessee Flat Top Box by Roseanne Cash invades my mind. I haven't heard that song since 1982, right? But there it is, Tennessee flat top box, and he would play all of February, I Tennessee flat top box. I'm writing sermons and doing all my normal stuff, and, and, there, and it wouldn't go away, and then it stopped. And then, Poncho and Lefty by Willie Nelson and, uh, uh, huh? I can't remember the other guy, Waylon Jennings? Was it Waylon? Yeah, it might have been Waylon. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, Poncho and Lefty. So for the entire month of March, I got Poncho and Lefty running around in my head. And then mercifully, it stopped, right? And I, and I even told my wife, I was like, this is so weird. I just have these songs popping into my head. That it's not like I heard it on the radio and went, ooh, you know, and it sort of lodged there. They just came out of nowhere. And they're the most unlikely songs. And they won't go away. And it's not exactly annoying, but it's not exactly pleasant either. I'm not sure what to do with this, but it's obviously... To me, it feels like God is doing something. But I was able to work, live my normal life, interact with my family, with all that going on in there. 
Now, if you think carefully about how your mind works in your day-to-day experience, you'll find, as I found in that experiment, that three-month experiment, that you have two main modes of mental activity. Okay, so let's, let's start with, with the simplest one to understand. When you are absolutely engrossed in something, you're just completely, you're in a zone, they, they call it, and, and you're so um, engrossed in it, everything else is crowded out. You lose track of time, you're not aware of your body, you may even suddenly realize that you were in an uncomfortable position for a long time and you didn't realize it. You may, you may go, holy cow, I gotta use the bathroom really bad right now. And it, you know, a minute ago you weren't even aware of that. Uh, you may, you may kind, of, kind of come to yourself and say, I'm starving, I'm hungry. And, and all that was going on in your body, but you weren't paying any attention to it. Your mind was just completely engrossed in whatever it is that you were doing. Now, there's a, a Hungarian psychologist uh, named uh, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. Okay, don't try and spell it. Um, and he studied this phenomenon extensively, and he named it flow. This is one of his books, his most uh, well-known book. And flow, says Csikszentmihalyi, is the ultimate or the optimal psychological state for happiness and productivity. And when you're in a state of flow, your mind is basically using all of its capacity to focus on whatever activity you're engrossed in. And if you experience that, and everybody has to one degree or another, but if you experience that, you know that's a pleasant place to be. It just is, it's a nice place to be, whether you're jamming with an instrument or working on an art project or working on a car or welding. I used to love to weld. You know, I'd get into a state of flow when I would weld because it's just, you, you can't hear anything and it's just you and that puddle of molten metal right there and you're, you know, stitching the rod in there and trying to make it pretty and, and all that. And, and I just, I was just absorbed by that, that process. Well, that's, when that happens, you're using 100% of your brain, your mind's horsepower to focus on what you're focusing in. But most of us, even when we're doing something important, do not enter a state of flow or anything close to it. And so our thoughts and our conscious experience on a daily basis generally looks something like this. You focus on something that you're doing for five minutes or 10 minutes or maybe 15 or 20, and then your concentration weakens or you're distracted for a minute and there's this stream of other thoughts that sort of push their way into the picture. And during that three-month period, that was what was happening. I would work, and it would be okay, and I'd lift my head, you know, come dancing. That's how they did it when I was just a kid. Stop it, please, be quiet. And, um, and so the, the, that, that, that stream pushes its way into the picture. And often that stream consists of really stupid or even destructive stuff. Often it's hardly even worth calling thinking. And, and you'll stay in that state for a few minutes and then you'll sort of force yourself to go back to the main task and you'll flip back and forth like that all day. And when you get tired or when you get bored or when you get resentful about the main task, the stream of mental sludge will come back more and more frequently. And if you're engaged in activities that don't require a lot of sustained concentration, like driving uh, long distance on a highway trip, you'll find that the stream of mental sludge is the predominant thing that occupies your consciousness for most of the time. And Csikszentmihalyi said in his book, Flow, quote, when left to itself, the mind turns to bad thoughts, trivial plans, sad memories, and worries about the future. Disorder, confusion, and decay are the default 
option of consciousness. Now, that stream of sludge is enormously powerful for shaping your life over a sustained period of time. And God, what God wants you to do is to replace the stream of sludge with two things. Number one, passages from the Word of God. And number two, very simple, very brief, but very powerful prayers. The Word of God clearly and explicitly commands both of those things. Meditate on the Word of God day and night and pray without ceasing. Paul says pray without ceasing four different places in the New Testament. So if God took the time to repeat it all those times in all those different books, both Old Testament and New Testament, you might think that he meant it and that it's important. The Word of God commands you to do this and promises you that if you will begin making efforts at it, that you will achieve some success and it will make a radical difference in your life. It will give you good success, says Joshua 1.8. Now, once again, this is a habit that has to be developed by an application of discipline. You have to intend it. You have to take intelligent action towards the goal. But you can do this if you want to. You can. And when God sees you making a sincere effort, he will very quickly come to your aid, and he will lavishly reward even your feeble efforts, and your mind will start to be renewed, and your life will begin to change. Now, there are two other concepts from the scriptures that I want to just introduce briefly here in our final moments, and we will talk more about them later. There are two other characteristics of a mind that's being renewed, and they're related to the whole mental map thing and the replacing the mental sludge with something positive and life-affirming from the Word of God and from prayer. The two, there are two other characteristics, though. The first, another Greek word here, we're not going to use it much, but the first is hezekiah, or stillness or quietness. It's the picture that we're given in Psalm 131, where the writer is content to rest in God, where he's quieted his soul. He says like a weaned child in its mother's arms. The significance of a weaned child is he's not getting his breakfast from mom anymore. He's getting it from the kitchen table. And so he's at rest in mom's arms. He's not rooting around for breakfast. Like a weaned child in its mother's arms says the psalmist, I have stilled my soul. It's, it's the idea in Psalm 46 and verse 10 where God says, be still and know that I am God. You see, the unregenerate mind is disjointed, it's noisy, it's chaotic, but a redeemed and transformed mind is quiet and it's still and it's orderly. The second characteristic of a renewed mind is nepsis, nepsis, which means wakefulness or watchfulness. Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 5.8 when he says, be alert, have nepsis, be alert and of sober mind. Why? For your enemy the devil plows, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So you want stillness? or Hezekiah, which makes your mind more orderly, but also it makes it easier to observe and to correct when there's a problem. If there's less chaos, it's easier to see what's happening. And you want watchfulness or nepsis, which, is, 
is paying attention to what's going on in the mind and sees when it goes, starts to go off track and takes immediate action to correct the situation before something bad happens, before something that's annoying turns into something you resent, which turns into anger, which turns into harsh words for somebody that you can't take back. And so you, you want stillness and you want watchfulness or attention. So, so that's your main task. That's, that's the main task that Paul is laying out for us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that your mind will be renewed as you recognize that the stream of mental sludge is there and you're already meditating on something constantly and you can choose what to meditate on. You can fill it with kinks songs or you can fill it with the word of God. It's something, in other words, that you're already doing. You're just doing it in a destructive way. And so you want to take what's destructive and replace it with simple prayer and with Scripture and see what happens. Now, there have been some individuals in history that have done this and have left a record of their experience. One of them was a man named Frank Laubach, who lived in uh, the Philippines I believe he died in 1966 or 68. Um, and, uh, and he, in the midst of his time as a missionary in the Philippines, he was a minister from a denomination that later became the United Church of Christ. Um, but he wrote about his experience. He, he said, I'm just going to, in 1930, he said, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to try and turn my mind towards God one second out of every minute and just see if I can sustain that. And he began to work at it, and he, he left a diary. And you can read portions of his diary online if you want. They're freely available. Um, but he said, I'm, I'm going to, as the experiment progressed and evolved, he said, I'm, I'm going to try and, and just basically live my life as much as I can in submission to God, to say to God all the time, what do you want now? What do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? And, and he said, Far from making him less productive, it turned him into a genius. He, he actually designed a, a, a system to teach illiterate people to read in their own language, and that was for him a prerequisite of teaching them to read the Bible. And he worked among, um, he worked among Muslims in the Philippines, and they loved him. He taught 90,000 people to read in the Philippines and then took his show on the road to India and Pakistan and other places. And, and, and all of this came out of just this submitting his mind to God. And, and listen to what he says. Frank Laubach wrote of how in his personal experiment of moment-by-moment submission to the will of God, the fine texture of his work and life was transformed. In January of 1930, he began to cultivate the habit of turning his mind to Christ for one second out of every minute. After only four weeks, he reported, I feel simply carried along each hour doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I have never felt it this way before. I need something and turn around and find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. From a lonely missionary post in the Philippines, God raised Frank Laubach to the status of Christian world statesman, and spokesman for Christ. He founded the World Literacy Crusade, still in operation today. And without any political appointment, he was, inf- was influential on the United States foreign policy in the post-World War II years. But he was forever and foremost cr- 
Christ's man and always knew that his brilliant ideas and incredible energy and effectiveness derived from his practice of constant conscious interface with God. You have no idea what God can do in you and how he will change you if you will make some pretty feeble efforts over an extended period of time to just try and reach out to him. It delights his soul. He says, this is what I made you for. This is, I want to bless you. I want to turn you into the kind of person who can handle enormous blessing without being corrupted by it. I want to do in you something wonderful. And there have been others. And their experience is amazing. And you can read it. But what's more important than reading about it is learning how to do it. Just try. Just try for a month. It's going to be feeble. It's going to be start and stop. You're not going to be satisfied with your effort. Just try and see what happens. I guarantee it'll be the thrill of your life. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. If I have spoken any word today that is untrue, unhelpful, cause it to be forgotten. And if I have said anything today that is good and right and pure and holy, boy, burn it into our minds and then let it take its place in our heart. And let us not be like that foolish man that James describes who looks at himself in a mirror and goes away forgetting what he looks like. Let us instead be those who are transformed by the word of God. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.